Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From the diary of Abigail Beecher Wolf, February 1860, Hartford, Connecticut. The famous Mr. Lincoln came to our city last night, and I was resolved to go and see him because Papa says I'm insufficiently engaged with the affairs of our times. He said to me, Just continue in your dissolute ways, Abigail, and you will find yourself at the mercy of Beelzebub's minions in the fiery afterworld, where your naked flesh will be prodded with iron pokers heated to a fiery red. I believe Papa is no longer taking the pills prescribed by Dr. Dixon. It was with great excitement that I went to the appointed hour to see Mr. Lincoln speak, but I was disappointed to see that the stories of the Illinois giant killer were greatly exaggerated. He was a shabby, disheveled man, shorter than I expected, and here came from him a high smell as if this travel-stained fellow had debarked from the train and presented himself to the world without a change to fresh linen. And rather than speak about the issues of the day, Mr. Lincoln produced a battered-looking banjo and played O Susanna, which he sang in the voice of a whinnying horse. When I returned home and told Mama of my dissolution with Mr. Lincoln, she told me I had gone to the wrong hall and that I had been instead with Mr. Stephen Foster. When Papa finds out, he most certainly will call me a fool and a strumpet and a Jezebel and a snolly goster and a miscreant and a fatuous nincompoop. And then I will point out that he dresses in Mama's things when she is asleep. And then Mama will cry. So, another Wednesday. Hartford is so boring. Today, a show about Connecticut during the Civil War. And now, he's the man who traveled in 1860 with P.T. Barnum as a curiosity of flatulence, Colin McEnroe. Not a part of my history that I like to uh, brag about, really. It was a long time ago. So, yes, we are here in downtown Hartford on Trumbull Street with an audience of, I don't know, 70, 75 people here. Uh, no, not really. It's a rainy day. And, it's, and you know, in Hartford today, there is, there's this thing in Hartford that I always call the February gelato. There's this kind of coffee-colored substance that gets on the streets, and it just kind of stays there, you know, and they, they run the plows over it and stuff like that. But it's still, it looks, it, looks, it looks like it would be good to eat, but actually it's not. Uh, and it just stays there as this kind of, permafrost, you know, for the rest of the winter. So uh, it's kind of a tough day out there, but uh, some hearty souls have joined us here on Trumbull Street. If you're listening, if you're within the sound of my voice and you're very brave, you can uh, come down here too. We have lots of room for you here on uh, Trumbull Street. We're about halfway down the block uh, on the eastern side of the XL Center. Uh, we've got a little pop-up studio here. It actually belongs to Hartford Denim, where they sell their fabulous clothes. So, But you can see there's a little sign outside that tells you where we are. 
or easy to find. So we are going to talk about the, the stories of the Civil War and, in fact, sort of the way our collective memory processes Civil War, the Civil War past here in Connecticut as opposed to the reality. Uh, joining us today are Professor Matt Warshower. He's the chair of the Department of History at Central Connecticut State University and the author of several publications, including Connecticut in the American Civil War, Slavery, Sacrifice, and Survival, which is, is it newly out in paperback? I got a paperback copy yesterday. Is yeah, it it's, been, it's been out in paperback for a while. Okay. And, uh, and also a hardcover if you choose. And Dr. Frank Mitchell, he's the interim assistant director and curator of the Amistad Center at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Um, and let me just sort of tell you a little bit about the triggers for this show for me a little bit. One, we, we've talked about these things in the past, but I sort of feel like they never quite get straightened out. And, and, you know, we have these ideas in our head about what Connecticut is and what Connecticut was. So even last year, uh, when the, the release of Lincoln uh, occasioned this little battle between Tony Kushner, the screenwriter, uh, and Joe Courtney, uh, the congressman. And Joe Courtney correctly pointed out that, in fact, in terms of the vote, uh, on on the emancipation on the amendment um, that uh, the Connecticut had voted differently and, and more affirmatively than the movie had represented, and he was correct about that. But Joe also sort of said, kind of in making that point, he's absolutely right. Kushner got it wrong, Spielberg got it wrong, but he kind of also sort of said, well, you know, because everybody would know Connecticut, of course, would be in favor of emancipation, of course, you know, we're in this incredibly enlightened place. And then recently, we were doing a show on where we live uh, with Mr. Dankosky about the history of the Hartford Current, celebrating its 250th anniversary, and we're all sitting there on this panel, including me and some of my former colleagues at the Hartford Current, and uh, we got around to the Civil War, and one of my former colleagues said, well, of course, the Current was on the right side of things then, um, and <laughs> which is... You know, when you get to emancipation, kind of true, but there's, it's a much more complicated and unfortunately really virulent history, as you will hear, for the, for the Hartford Current. And it just reminded me that there are the real stories and then the stories we make up, the stories we kind of want to believe. And that Warshower, that's what we sometimes call collective memory, right? It's sort of there's, you know, there's what happened at Watergate and then there's now how people remember Watergate. Oh, exactly right. And it's, it's the way that how history changes and how historians have looked at history, but then again, how the public remembers the, the concepts of history. And one of the big things that I, I like when I go out and give talks uh, to, to uh, groups about the Civil War, I, and especially when you're dealing with the issue of emancipation and slavery, I always try to describe it as you have to look at the, the Civil War from two different ends. If you stand on the end of the Civil War and you're in 1865-66 and you say, well, look, the Civil War occurred and it resulted in emancipation, i.e., the Civil War was always about emancipation. Mm -hmm. But if you go and stand on the other end of the Civil War in 1860-1861, you, you don't conclude, oh, this, this war is going to be all about emancipation and slavery because it, it's, it's how you look at it and the vantage point from which you're standing. And, and Frank Mitchell, I would assume from a curatorial point of view, too, that this is part of your mission, too. I mean, we can we can co collectively distort or believe what we want to believe, but there's sometimes it just in the, in the presence of physical artifacts and, and things that, that can't be changed, there's a way in which history returns to its original course. Sure, the objects certainly, and, and we believe this at Amistad, the objects are a portal into telling these stories and they're a chance to be reverent about something that happened 200 years ago, but also to bring that to the present. And there is that translation piece, that there are the, the historians who do the research and scholarship, and there's the public, but there's something that has to happen in between, because the public may or may not read the academic history that has what we think of as being the real story, and so we've got to find some way to filter that to 
the broader public. And often museums can do that. I'm going to ask you both this question, but I'll start with you, Frank. Do you ever discover kind of a resistance? Um, I mean, when people are confronted with, with things that are a little bit different than what they believe, do people you ever have people kind of rebel against that? Um, yeah, I think people, people certainly around slavery, there is the notion of what slavery was. And so, mm -hmm. though we have been talking about the fact that Connecticut had slavery forever, it's only 15, 20 years in various ways, uh, CPTV documentaries, mm -hmm. the Freedom Trail, there are still folks who continue to believe that you know, Connecticut didn't have slavery or it was somehow different from other kinds of slavery. It was better, it was easier, it was nicer or kinder. And I think mm -hmm. there are those challenges to convince people that you know, some of these things really are true and they go against the grain of what we want to believe or what we've been taught to believe, but they are in fact material facts. Well, and, and Matt, I mean, sometimes the thinking is as simplistic as North good, South bad. Oh, I, I think that's exactly the, the framework of how most people think of it. And when I go to, to do talks, the two things that I want people to understand are, one, that Connecticut was not in fact, an abolitionist mecca. And so I love that you started out with the issue of Tony Kushner. And I, I remember I was at that dinner yeah. that you uh, you interviewed him at Kingswood Oxford. And um, I thought he was incredibly interesting, brilliant, um, talked about Lincoln in ways, in some ways that I hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed that. But um, yeah, Courtney, uh, I mean, I think that he represents it. He and, and the thing that frustrated me most about that, and because I contacted his office, I sent him a copy of my book, mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted him to understand that history. One of the things that the Civil War Commemoration Commission has really been devoted to for the 150th anniversary is to telling lots of aspects of Civil War history and Connecticut's involvement, but especially focusing on this issue of race and slavery and understanding that Connecticut wasn't a hub of abolitionism. And, you know, I have, as a professor, a fairly limited platform to, to provide that information. Congressman Courtney has a big platform. I mean, he had the national news media. And so, in some ways, I felt as though he was partially undoing what we had been attempting to do. Even though he was in the process of setting the historical record straight. Which exactly. You've got to give him props for that. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's say it. You know, let's, I mean, one of the things that you basically argue in your book is that among New England states, Connecticut was probably the least abolitionist, the most copperhead, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, William Lloyd Garrison, the most famous abolitionist in the country. Uh, you know, he creates this newspaper, The Liberator, that he runs for 30 years. Uh, and he referred to Connecticut as that Georgia of New England. Uh, that is not a positive, uh, you know, a, a positive uh, header for this state. And, and so that, and that's kind of borne out by the political record, too. I mean, there are these pretty close elections. I mean, uh, as we go along, two elections, two gubernatorial elections during this time, 60 and 63, where, once again, Connecticut probably came closer to electing a Copperhead governor than, than any northern state. Yeah, oh, that's exactly right. And I had said, you know, a few minutes ago, there's two things I want people to know. And one is that we were not an abolitionist mecca, abolitionist mecca. And two, that there was tremendous, tremendous division within the state of Connecticut over fighting the Civil War. And in fact, you know, you, the, the elections you're referring to are between our Civil War governor, who is a Republican, uh, William Buckingham, who is one of only, I think it's three Republican governors, uh, northern governors, who served through the entirety of the Civil War. And at this time, Buckingham has to be reelected every single year. 
and a very well-known uh, Democrat, Thomas Seymour, who had been governor. He ran from he he uh, served as governor from fifty to fifty three. He runs in those two elections you mentioned, and he's he a comes, Mexican war. Uh, he's a Mexican war hero, and and he comes incredibly close to defeating Buckingham. And he has run on a slate that says, "I oppose this war. I support the institution of slavery. It's constitutional. Connecticut shouldn't have anything to do with the war." So I think that's a pretty big indicator of the level of division that exists in this state. But Frank, there are people listening and saying, that can't be right because Amistad, Amistad. So, and, and, and obviously that's right there in your title too. So how does the Amistad story factor in against what Matt's saying right now? Is it just an incredibly small, non-representative sample of Farmington and, and New Haven abolitionism? There, there really, and I'm glad you said contest, but there really is this tumultuous struggle happening from, uh, and we can go right back to the earliest days of the colony. Um, there's a big binder back at the State Library of uh, complaints and petitions, Negroes and Indians, where enslaved folks. Actually, I'm going to have you hold that thought because I think you might be having a microphone problem right now. And we're here, we're going to give you a different microphone. And this is what happens when you do live radio in a downtown location. Now talk yes. to you. Oh, oh I hear you so much better. Okay, start over. Uh, there is that sense of struggle and, and contest around uh, the idea of abolitionism and, and sort of the place, really the place of blacks in Connecticut, and that's really what it comes down to. I think plenty mm -hmm. of folks didn't want to have slavery, but they didn't necessarily want to have black people living equitably amongst them here in Connecticut. And, mm -hmm. and we see that from uh, the binders of petitions in the State Library uh, from the 1700s in which uh, enslaved and some free blacks are suing people for back pay, the vote, um, citizenship, you name it, mm. uh, onto Prudence Crandall and these young women trying to go to school there and the fight over that to the Amistad case and sort of the softening and the sort of creation of allies around this struggle that sort of culminates with uh, the Jubilee celebrations around the proclamation. But there, there is a steady stream of folks in the state who are fighting for, for freedom and folks enslaved and free black folks who are having their Jennifer Holiday moment and saying, you know, we're staying, we're staying. You might not love us, but we are not going. <laughs> and I think that that's always there, even if there's larger stuff happening. That might be the first time level. that Jennifer Holiday moment phrase has ever been employed in that particular <laughs> context, but I could be wrong about that. Well, uh, you know, I think, you know, one of the things Frank's talking about with this idea of a context contest is that, you know, you guys started with, uh, you know, with your intro with Lincoln, um, the most interesting Lincoln intro I've ever heard in my life, by the way. <laughs> um, I think I actually needed pharmaceuticals after that. Right. Uh, well, they're but, right They're right next door at the St. Joseph's uh, uh, School of Pharmacy. Uh, was, and my <laughs> wife works for yeah. University of St. Joseph, so it works great. You get a discount. Uh, but, but, I mean, we, we always think of, and this is, again, this idea of, of historical memory, mm. is that we view Lincoln in the post-emancipation ideal, and that Lincoln is the great emancipator. And, but, but when you look at Lincoln before, you know, midsummer 1862, he is focused on the idea of gradual emancipation that could last as long as 1900, mm -hmm. and he's intimately connected to and devoted to the idea of colonization. He doesn't believe that blacks and whites can live peacefully in this country, that both, both will have a problem with that.
Well, actually, as long as we're doing that, then let's freeze the frame right now in 1860, because, I mean, despite the fact that Abigail Beecher Wolf uh, went to the wrong venue, uh, Lincoln does come to town. Actually, he's all over the state in 1860. About he speaks in five different cities. And, and once again, some of this has to do with this contested gubernatorial election, right? Buckingham needs the help. He's not, well, Lincoln isn't president yet, but he's, he is, in two senses, a giant figure already. And so he's there stumping, basically, to try to keep this state Republican. Oh, that's exactly right. He comes uh, to the East Coast. Uh, this is when he gives his famous Cooper Union mm -hmm. address in New York, and then he goes up to New Hampshire to visit his son, who is going to school up there. And uh, the people and the the guys who are in charge of the the Republican Party in Connecticut realize that they have a really really tough fight on their hands, and so they contact Lincoln and they say, "Look, you need to come to." And you're right; he's not the nominee; he's not even the the chosen nominee for the 1860 presidential election yet. But they say, "You need to come here, and you need to support Buckingham." And so Lincoln does, in fact, come. And one of the really key things to understand about Connecticut's election at this time is that we have second only to New Hampshire. We have the earliest gubernatorial election it's in like the country. Like it's, it's, it's the first Monday of April. Yeah. And so you, you got to think about it in terms of like how we consider presidential primaries today, <laughs> where we're looking, oh, this is going to tell us what's going to happen with this party. And so having Lincoln come, and this is where the idea of the wide awakes are born. Yeah, well, didn't they start with Cassius Clay, though? Um, Cassius, not that Cassius Clay, but uh, the Kentucky Cassius Clay. I think he came here before Lincoln, maybe, and, and they may have come out for him, the wide awakes. I could be wrong about that. Uh, I, I've never heard that right. story. I always heard that it was connected uh, and have read that it's connected the, I mean, specifically with Lincoln. Despite our vastly checkered racial and abolitionist history, we can say anyway that the wide awakes, who represented this kind of militant expression of, of Republican politics, or not militant might be the wrong way to put it, but aggressive, shall we say, expression of Republican politics, that they, they woke up for the first time in Hartford. Yeah, right? no, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Maybe the Tea Party should change, change their name <laughs> to the Wide Awakes. Well, and Frank, how do you, in, in curatorial uh, fashion, how do you handle Lincoln? I know you've done exhibitions that, that touch on his life. We legacy. do, and then we should note that Lincoln at Cooper Hewitt, having that chance to be photographed and beginning to think about burnishing his image and how important sort of the representations of Lincoln and Frederick Douglass would be throughout the campaign and the war, uh, we're really lucky that our founding collector left us. Lincoln and Douglass inspired him greatly. So he mm -hmm. left us a really nice collection of images that tell some great stories about those two men and their friendship at some level. And we've done a number of exhibitions, maybe second only to you, <laughs> we have taken these anniversaries to the moon and we've done three big shows yeah. around Lincoln, uh, a partnered show with CHS in which we thought about uh, the role of soldiers and the way they were represented during the war and during the current wars and sort of how Lincoln was portrayed uh, and how you would have known Lincoln if you were someone who collected in the 1950s versus what we think about him today and finding artists who brought a more contemporary perspective to that, as well as thinking about the war and the cultural ramifications of that war, and then finally emancipation. So it's been great for us to have that chance, and we've, I've certainly been amazed at the ways in which people have been hungry to talk about these issues, and it's been this opportunity to talk about what the war means and what it should mean and how to commemorate it and what it means for us in 2014, and that's... That's really been a gift. All right. Uh, we're here in Hartford. I'm going to make my producer very happy right now and go to a break. Um, I have a tendency to get kind of lost in thought and screw up the clock. Uh, we're here on Trumbull Street in Hartford at the Excel Center. Uh, we're, uh, we have a little pop-up studio in the fabulous uh, space of uh, Hartford Denim, uh, I think which is also a pop-up space. Isn't it actually a pop-up? So we're a pop-up within a pop-up? <laughs> there must be a name for that. 
Uh, we have to think about that. Pop up squared. Um, pop tart. Oh, yeah, or pop tart. We're a pop tart. Pop tart. All right. I can live with that. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back after this. All right, we're back. We're back on Trumbull Street. Uh, you are welcome to come visit us if you are very brave. There's a very brave young lady here who's uh, on uh, vacation from school, and this is what they're making her do on her vacation from school. But um, I, can't, I can't get involved with that, though. All right, and we are talking uh, with our guests uh, about the history of uh, Connecticut during the Civil War. Um, and by the way, as we go along here, maybe towards the, in the third segment, we do have floating mics. We, we don't really have a vast oceanic audience, but, um, but if people do have questions or comments or if we, if we stir things up uh, in some way, uh, please feel free. Uh, Tess Aronson or one of our other fine people will be floating around with that microphone uh, at some point. So uh, I want to sort of come back. We're talking to uh, Dr. Frank Mitchell and Matt Warshower. Um, I want to come back to something Frank said uh, earlier on, uh, because I think for people here in Connecticut, there's probably some kind of notion that, if they think about it at all, that there might have been slaves here, or I, I don't know, like in the 1700s sometime or something like that. But the actual flow of, of, of Connecticut emancipation is pretty complicated, and, and I think uh, even, uh, you know, even pretty late in the game, uh, I think in Matt's book, it's like in 1848, there's still some slaves, somehow or there's yeah. still slaves in Connecticut. So Frank, I don't know, when you're trying to uh, acquaint people with not the history of, of Amistad, but the history of the actual slaves in Connecticut. I mean, what's the story you tell? Uh, I tell the story of uh, folks arriving with some of the earliest founders, um, that people arriving to found Haven Colony and having um, black servants or enslaved blacks or captives uh, present there. And so that there was a black presence in Connecticut from the earliest moments, and it was a, pre a presence that arrived not by choice, mm -hmm. and that sort of throughout uh, those first couple hundred years, people were struggling with the notion of slavery and what to do with it, and uh, gradual emancipation comes because economically it doesn't make sense in some ways, um, culturally it's sort of foreign, I mean we are in some ways a, a very congregationalist state, colony at that point, and, and sort of people are struggling with the notion of, of what it means to hold slaves. Uh, and they're doing that within a much larger context context of New England and the Mid-Atlantic where people are also thinking about the issue of slavery. And so, so and Matt, I mean, in your book, one of the things you document is, ironically, really in the run-up to the revolution, um, you know, as we're getting close to 1775 and 1776, slavery is actually on the rise a little bit right up to it, there. It's on the rise, and we are, Connecticut is the number one slaveholding uh, colony in New England. We have the largest, you know, just under 6,000. And, and, you know, Frank had said, well, the, you know, the clergy are struggling with it, but among those who own slaves, it's, it, largely it's the clergy and lawyers and doctors and it's the well-to-do of the society. And, and then these very complicated things happen, right? There's one emancipation thing that passes, but it's really complicated. It's based on when you're born and if you're not born at a certain, I just, and, and there's, uh, people who have seen 12 Years a Slave, there's some interesting narratives also from that time in Connecticut. Is it James Mars? Is James guy? Mars. Yes. James Mars yep. has a pretty interesting story Richard to tell. Smith. About, yeah. you know, we have so, a number. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I don't know who wants to tell the story, but it's it, somehow or other in 1848, there's still like six slaves in Connecticut at least, right? Well, and that this is the, the very definition of the concept of a gradual emancipation. Mm. And the idea is that you, you pass a law and you say, all right, 
from this day on, you know, today is February 19th, and from this day on, anybody who was born into slavery, when you turn 21 or 25, depending on your gender, you'll be freed. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind that, if you're born before that act, mm-hmm. well, you're just out of luck. Right. So, and the idea is that you're going to lessen the economic impact on people who own slaves, but just as important, perhaps even more important, is you're going to lessen the social impact on suddenly freeing all of these black people into your society. And this was always the absolute biggest concern whenever you're freeing slaves is, what do you do with them then? Because slavery is not just an economic labor system. It's also a means of social control. So, and, yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I mean, and you reading some of the documents from that time, once again, the rhetoric is constantly virulent at times. And so one of the ways in which Connecticut is frequently convulsed in this manner is in conversations about whether or not Free, freed slaves or free black people should be allowed to vote? And the answer is resoundingly no. Oh. And, and it's, it's, you often see these like really disturbing bits of rhetoric like these people were foisted on us through no choice of our own and why should we let them? You know, it's, it's bad enough we're stuck with them. Why would we be letting them vote? Yeah. Well, yeah, people couldn't vote for right. sure. And, and keeping in mind that there was at this point a free population. So yeah. this is a debate that's happening despite the fact that they're folks who've chosen to stay and are now free and and in some sense are beloved in their communities in every community there were like three people that everybody loved and they gave them their freedom and they were their kind of uh, yeah they were beloved the, the most remarkable yeah sorry frank the most remarkable thing to me is that in i think it's the 1840s there are a number of um well-respected black businessmen who have had the right to vote Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have the right to vote. It's been taken away from even those who did have it in the 1818 con- state constitution. They lose the right to vote, and they petition, and they say, look, we pay taxes. We're mm-hmm. businessmen. We pay taxes. We believe we should have the right to vote. The Connecticut General Assembly actually passes a law saying, well, all right, black people don't have to pay taxes. So they, they would rather do that. Can you imagine a state government today who says, no, no, no. There we are don't people want your who tax take money. that deal now. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> I'd take that deal. So. Well, you know, the other thing is, I mean, we're talking about Connecticut as though we're, we're an undivided place. And, and one of the things that's pretty clear, like even talking about James Mars, I, I think there's like a difference for him between Norfolk and Canaan at one point. It's mm-hmm. like one place is pretty cool to be and the other one's not so good. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask about, uh, Frank, is you look at James Mars' narrative, and I, I think part of it is that there's like some planter or somebody down in Virginia who's trying to get him to c- come back down and talk, and he's got his mother talked into this. And, I mean, that seems to me a hard thing to wrap my mind around in the 19th century that there would be an African-American family in Connecticut that would be thinking about going to Virginia where the son would be really worried that his mother was going to get talked into going back to Virginia, but maybe things weren't quite as crystal clear as they seem to me now. One of the most fascinating things about this work in general is that for every rule you think you know, I can find you five things that contradict (laughs) that. So anything you think about slavery, Especially here in Connecticut, that's mm-hmm. true. Um, the Mars story is fascinating and complex because, because he is so cognizant as a young person mm-hmm. um, and is able to imagine sort of escaping and, and, and has in the narrative all the, sort of the great big narrative moments that take place in these slave narratives. So the chance to fight against the master and slaver, uh, the chance to run away, uh, being helped by townspeople, it's sort of got all the big moments, yeah. all the tropes. Uh, it is tricky because the, the parents are debating about what's going to be best for him, that the family really can't not do what they're being demanded of. And he actually has some mobility. The fact that he is younger and 
could benefit from a gradual emancipation, um, meaning that they couldn't, as older people, is playing into their their internal debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Matt, was there a difference, say, between Hartford and New Haven? Um, like, I think some of the um, guys that you were talking about before were New Haven guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's more of an abolitionist base in New Haven than there is in Hartford. But even in saying that, it, it really becomes tricky. In And, you know, you, this is one of the funny things about historical memory and about our understanding of history. We have a tendency, and I say we, the, you know, kind of collective we, right. we, we have this tendency to think that, oh, you know, Connecticut's an old state. Surely we've studied everything and we know everything about it. Mm -hmm. And yet we really, we know a lot about a few abolitionists in Connecticut, but we actually know very little about the abolitionist movement in Connecticut. So I had one of my uh, former grad students, while she was a grad student, she's actually doing doctoral work up in Maine right now, and she did work on Wyndham County and came to find out that, and largely because of the Prudence Crandall affair, she came to find out and argue that Wyndham County was actually far more abolitionist than many other areas of mm -hmm. Connecticut. And so it really comes down to with doing state history that it's it's all about locality and and you know the whole 169 town things in connecticut right. even today we you know every town is different but it's really really true for this time period and at a lot of at times it centers around one or two individuals who create a a sense of a movement and this is why you know when people say well why was connecticut different abolitionist wise than say boston was than massachusetts was and i have one name and that's william lloyd garrison because garrison was established in boston um and then you know he would he was actually married in brooklyn connecticut and his wife's family was from brooklyn and this is why wyndham county you start to get this. So when you, you break it down in that way, you start to get an understanding of how local flavors yeah, exactly. uh, matter. We have a number of those papers in the collection. I mean, they're, they're shredding at this point. But of folks who started papers in the wake of the Crandall Affair and at the urging of Garrison, and sort of it shows his influence kind of in and his voice and the, sort of the breadth of his voice. Yeah. And I think people are, and this is what uh, my, my student, uh, Carol Patterson Martineau, argues. She says, look, they, you, when you look at the, the Wyndham uh, County Telegraph, um, the newspaper at that time, and, and other newspapers all the way up from the 1830s through the, the Civil War, there is a real mortification in the aftermath of the Prudence Crandall affair. And, you know, today, and, and this is something that Joe Courtney would focus on. He would say, well, we're the home of Harry Beecher Stowe. We're the home of Prudence Crandall. And I remember when Prudence Crandall became the state heroine, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the state historian at the time, Kit Collier, wrote an op-ed for the Hartford Current and said, does the General Assembly have any idea what this history is, that they're choosing this person as the state heroine and that she was basically forced from the state because she wanted to educate young black women? Right. And, and, and I mean, there the story really is the story of somebody trying to do this against mm. incredible resistance and, and incredible antipathy. Well, you know, I, I, the, the garrison thing gives us a chance to focus on, on something I wanted to get to in this segment, uh, which is the difference between abolition and emancipation. And, and so, and there's sort of, so there's kind of two ways to think about this. And one of them is maybe the sort of garrison way, which is uh, African-American people are, people and they're entitled to rights and they're covered by the Declaration of Independence and they ought to be covered by the Constitution and, and this is the right thing to do. And then there's kind of the Connecticut flavor of emancipation, which is not to say it's a uniform thing, but that it's really basically kind of a white thing, right? Yeah, well, and this is what's, 
there's a kind of, I don't know if it's a simple complexity or a complex simplicity <laughs> uh, when it comes to uh, abolition and emancipation. There are huge shades and varieties of abolitionism. There are some abolitionists like Garrison who are immediatists. They say, no, it's got to end right now. There are other abolitionists who say, well, you know, we can do it over a period of time, gradual, or gradual abolition. Um, but then the real key difference between abolition and emancipation, this is where I, I, I think that it is simple, and once you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, I get that. Mm. Abolition has some, whatever the shades of it are, abolitionists have some fundamental belief in some level of social and political equality for blacks. Mm. Emancipationists don't necessarily have that. And the way that I describe it in the book is that abolition places the slave before the union. It's, it's about the rights of the slave. Emancipation, Lincoln comes around to emancipation, not because he's an abolitionist, but because he believes that enacting emancipation and freeing the slaves will help to end the war and therefore will help to save the union. And I think also, I mean, the, the other thing that we're not saying is, and, and this is clear in the Connecticut stuff, is that a lot of this is, a, particularly prior to the war, is a numbers game too, right? I mean, a, a lot of, some of Connecticut's opposition to slavery has to do with numbers, with representation, with um, with the Three-Fifths Compromise, stuff like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, And we don't want to forget that there were black abolitionists as well. Mm -hmm. And just to step back a second, the Prudence Crandall affair, as difficult as it was, certainly made it possible for the Amasad captives to have the hearing that they had in Connecticut. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that we do take from this is that people could learn and grow and make a change and in the same way that Lincoln could change and become a better man thinking about race and equality, folks in Connecticut could have that same experience. And I think for me, that's always the heartening lesson from that. But yeah. there were black abolitionists, if you want to use that language yeah. for that. I sort of feel like abolitionists it doesn't go far enough, and maybe there is a shade there that makes sense because, at some level, people are saving their lives, right? It's not simply an academic debate, you know, as Solomon North would tell you. You could, in fact, be stolen back to slavery tomorrow. So it's not as if, if slavery exists, you are not free, even if you think you're free. So their stake in it was much greater than anybody else's. Yeah. And white and, abolitionists and so could be killed. A different and be, name, yeah. well, they could be killed, but they could just say, I didn't do it. Whereas Solomon North couldn't. Right. Yeah, you know, I, Brown I, I agree. You're right. Told. He was liable to be taken back to slavery no matter what. And I think we don't have a word that really talks about that, the stake being that high for mm, yeah. uh, the black abolitionists, yeah. David Ruggles, um, all the folks from around Connecticut who really gave their lives and their fortunes to make sure that folks that they didn't know and weren't related to could gain their freedom. Yeah. We're going to gra grab a quick break here. We'll come back with our final segment after this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, our intern. Actually, could you guys stop playing that song? I'm trying to do the credits, and this is making me, like, super sad right now. Thanks. Hit it! Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Tess Aronson and Anna Novak. Katie Talarski is our executive producer and field general. Greg Hill tweets for us a WNPR call-in. The part of Bill Curry was played by Salmon P. Chase. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff reenacting the Battle of Savory Pungent Sausages, visit our website, wnpr.org. 
Tomorrow's show is a feature-length interview with animal rights crusader Ingrid Newkirk. And now, back to Colin. Yes, and a, a special thank you to everybody who helps host us down here in this pop-up location, which is part of a Hartford program, the name of which has escaped me, but thanks to Christina Newman, Hartford Scott, and everybody else who comes in here and turns on the lights and turns the key and stuff, and it's uh, so great to be down here in Hartford. Thanks also to Tucker Ives, who I think is back at the Mothership Engineering this show, and Gene Amatruda, who's the guy who just keeps us from flickering off the air at all times. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of other people to thank as well. Um, and to the big kids at uh, where we live who uh, get this thing open this morning, too. Uh, all right, so, and I just have to quickly say one thing, because I just heard the promo for uh, Peter and the Starcatcher. So I, I have a piece of news about Hartford. We've been sort of uh, sharing some uh, not necessarily flattering news about Hartford, so I'll tell you a nice thing about Hartford, which is that last night at Peter and the Starcatcher at, Bush, at the Bushnell, uh, so the Bushnell's a pretty big place. It holds 2,700 people, but it was a Tuesday night, and the weather wasn't that great, so it wasn't all that full for the opening of this national tour, but still, a lot of people there, and it's this very kind of postmodern, funny show, and in the middle of it, of the first act, the fire alarm goes off. And for a second, we thought it was maybe part of the show, but it wasn't. And this recorded announcement came on saying to evacuate. And I'd never been in a big auditorium where this has happened before. And so the good news is that people in Harvard are very orderly. They, they do it. They, nobody pushed, nobody shoved. Everybody walked out in a very calm and orderly manner. So, so you needn't fear. I mean, worry about something else. Anyway, don't worry about that. Uh, all right. So uh, we're talking to Professor Matt. War I'm sure you can think of something to worry about. Uh, Professor Matt Warshower is here. He's chair of the Department of History at Central Connecticut State University. I have to correct. I'm not the chair of the Department of oh. History. I never want that role. All right. But I am co-chair of the Connecticut Civil War Commemoration Commission. Actually, he says you're the chair of the pop-up history department. At the <laughs> that may be a different. That thing. I might. Do. Yeah, um, I would join you in that, Jim. And uh, author of, the, uh, of uh, Connecticut and the American Civil War, Slavery, Sacrifice, and Survival, Dr. Frank Mitchell's here with us. He's the interim assistant director. Well, can I correct you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm curator at large. Pura he's curator a pop-up curator at large. Uh, curator at large uh, at the Amistad Center at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And our book is called African American Connecticut Explored. Say that again. Our book is called African American Connecticut Explored. Oh, awesome! And it's an extension of you know you're familiar with the magazine yeah, Connecticut yeah, Explored. Explored. Yeah. That's a great magazine. So um, I want to talk a little bit here um, about why this conversation is important and why, why care now. Uh, in other words, um, people sometimes have a very distorted notion and people may inflate the virtue of the citizens of Connecticut uh, in, in the 1850s and the 1860s. Uh, the people may assume that, that abolition was a, a, a more dearly held cause and a more widely believed in cause here in, in Connecticut than it really was. Frank, why does that matter? Why should anyone care? Now, um, we have this incredible legacy. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates has been doing this great job of looking at these commemorations and these celebrations and forcing us to drag them into the present and to think about why they matter to us today and to mat matter to kids who may be really distant mm. to the Civil War, and yet he sort of makes it totally relevant. I'm, I'm grateful for that every time we put up an exhibition or think about showing an object. Uh, in his recent column, uh, in days after the Davis verdict, he says, policy is colorblind, but our legacy, our historical legacy is not. And mm -hmm. so we need to constantly be talking about history and making it relevant for people today and, and talking about why it matters to their lives and sort of what you are living with today and the ramifications and where they come from in history. And, and so, and Matt, I mean, let me just give a, a, a specific example because it's dear to my heart and perhaps maybe a little bit of a, a, a toxic splinter in my heart. So I worked for the Hartford Current full time for 20 years. 
uh, and I still have continued my column there, uh, and so and I care deeply about the current. Current celebrating its 250th anniversary right now, and we were uh, on where we live, and and one of the other panels was talking about how great the current was around emancipation. I want to quickly read from Matt's book. Uh, so the current for a while had this editor, an editor named Thomas Day, and 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 one reason uh, Ron Spencer, who was going to be here, professor uh, from Trinity College, who's just completed and about to be published uh, a scholarly biography of Gideon Wells. Uh, Ron told me that the reason that Gideon Wells well started the other paper, the Hartford Evening Standard or whatever it was, was that he was appalled by what a, uh, a seed of know-nothingism the, the current had turned into. So they had this guy, Thomas Day, the editor, and uh, he, talked, he did an article in 1856 called Sam and Sambo, declaring to his readers, it is not because we feel any burning zeal in the black man's cause that we resist the progress of slavery in this country. We like the white man better than we do the black. We believe the Caucasian variety of the human species is superior to the Negro variety. Color is not the trouble. Thick lips and woolly hair are not the objections. It is that the Caucasian variety is intrinsically a better breed of better brains, better moral traits, better capacity in, in, in every way than the Negro or the Mongolian or the Malay or the Red American. Woo! And so, I mean, that this is putrid, you know, at least to my brain it's putrid. Right, there's nothing wrong with that, is <laughs> <Yeah>. there? <laughs> And so then the question becomes, okay, so here you have an institution uh, like the Hartford Current that's celebrating its 250th anniversary. Is, is it important that that sort of somehow or other gets on the record and gets dealt with, or is that just in the dead letter box of history somehow? And tell me why you think one way or the other. Now, I think absolutely it's important. And I think, you know, what, what Frank kind of uh, ended off with is about, you know, w what are we as a society today and what are the issues that we're confronting? I mean, you cannot deny that today... Uh, the, the, the first part of the 21st century has been just a wee bit rocky uh, on many, many levels, whether you want to talk about you know, social issues, politics, economics, um, environment, uh, we are facing some really serious problems and we're trying to confront and talk those through. And I think it's important, you know, for me, history is all about understanding where we've been so we can understand where we are, how far we've come, that change can occur, and that we have to, you know, even on a personal level, we, we turn, we have to face what it is we've done in our lives for good or bad so that we can try and learn from it and better ourselves. That's at the most human basic personal level. Well, I believe that that is also true for a society. And we as a society like to, you know, you know, we're Americans, right? You know, we liberty and freedom and the American way. And well, what have liberty and freedom and the American way been? It, it, it isn't always, it can't always be painted with a single brushstroke in a single color. And I think that 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 diversity, that challenge, that difficulty, overcoming those challenges. You know, one of the things I write about in The Current, you know, I reflect on, you know, I, I use that quote and many others like it from the 1850s and into the 1860s. But ultimately, The Current, in the midst of the war, they do come around and they don't do it in, I think, a really overt way. They just kind of come around and s slip in the back door and go, well, you know, well, of course we always believed that slavery was wrong and that blacks have equal rights. So they don't confront it. And I re re refer to it as sort of an am amnesia that they engage in. Mm -hmm. But they do ultimately come around to it. And there's something to be said for that. So you can't celebrate somebody's success if you don't recognize where they've fallen down. 
We're back to Frank's point about change, right? Yeah, that, exactly. That people do change, uh, that institutions sometimes change uh, against all odds. But that, that also just sort of comes back to that question, though. I mean, you know, occasionally in this country we have debates about this or that institution proposing to apologize for slavery or something like that. And there are a lot of people who really brush that off and sort of say, well, I mean, you know, what would be the point of doing that in 2014? Um, but Frank, how, how do you look at that in terms of an institution, a nation, a society coming to terms with, with things that it might have kind of papered over uh, about the past? I mean, how useful is it to re-debate that or, or maybe even you know, from 150 years away, apologize for something that happened? I'm not sure. I mean, we, we're all complicit. We've all benefited. There would be nothing if we hadn't had slavery. So we should just acknowledge that and probably apologize to somebody. And then think about what we can do with that knowledge and how it goes beyond just apologizing. That I think Brown has done a really good job of acknowledging that history, but trying to find ways to work it into the way that university lives in the world today and how students are engaged and to think about what what having that foundation predicated on slavery means for how the university goes forward into sort of the 21st century and i think that's that's a hopeful sign and a model for other folks and other institutions to consider i, I think frank's point is good and you know when i talk to and i've, I've talked about this history of slavery with all black audiences, mixed audiences, and white audiences. And what a lot of white audiences feel like is, oh, you, you know, you're just loading it up on us and, and we should feel guilt for this. I'm like, well, why should you feel guilt for something that happened 150 years ago? You didn't do it. And, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't recognize the history and attempt to learn from it. So, and acknowledge that we all live with the benefits of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Important. And I guess the other question that I would have is, I mean, okay, so this, we've been having for the last 40, 45 minutes, a conversation that's uh, to uh, as much a degree as possible, an internal conversation about Connecticut. Like, what was Connecticut during this time? Um, but the other conversation that's still going on in this country is the difference between the North and the South, which I assume we would all have to acknowledge is still a pretty significant difference. Are you referring to the war of Northern aggression? <laughs> Exactly. So how do we or stand your ground? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it still continues. Mm -hmm. The the one of the things that to me is so really fascinating about all this is that the centennial of the American Civil War occurred in the 1960s in the midst of the civil rights struggle. Both sides, North and South, focused. They specific. I mean, they they addressed it specifically to avoid the causes of the war to avoid any discussion of slavery and it was all about reconciliation bringing hey, the north you south you cited in your book actually a, a, a book that was written at uh, in in 65 uh, about the civil war in Connecticut in which the word slavery did not appear or it doesn't appear in the index <laughs> no i mean it's hardly even mentioned yeah. and so in many ways we are now at the sesquicentennial the 150th and i get the sense from talking to a lot of especially reenactors they're still there they're still, they are very polite about, there's a lot of Confederate reenactors in New England, believe mm -hmm. it or not. And people are very still very polite about not questioning, well, why are you reenacting a Confederate while you're here in Connecticut? And so I think we still have really avoided the subject of, of the morality issue, what slavery, what the Civil War was fought for. And in fact, at the end of March, on March 29th at CCSU, we're holding a conference that are going to engage exactly these issues. We have the author, Tony Horowitz, 
who's coming who wrote a very well-known book, Confederates in the Attic. Yeah. And so it's something that we need to engage more of. It, it, uh, it, in terms of the storytelling, I mean, that's why I thought 12 Years a Slave was important because even cinematically, I mean, first of all, it was like 35 years between that and Roots and in the intervening time, uh, not, a lot, not a lot of storytelling and it's still bumping up against Gone with the Wind and the kind of the notion that there's like a happy version of the story that existed somewhere, right? Yeah, it, it's incredibly hard to watch. We are doing a screening next Thursday evening. If people haven't seen it yet uh, at the Athenaeum, give us a call. But seeing it means that you want to talk about it afterwards. You want to have that's some... Cute. That's critical. Uh, yeah. There's a lot to see and take in, and you need to process it. And we will be having a discussion afterwards. But it, it is an incredible experience. And again, it's that, that chance to apologize or um, acknowledge it in some way and then talk about it. So you're not just left feeling just overwhelmed and unsure of how to proceed. Okay, so I just get the two-minute sign, so I can't ask a new question, <laughs> which is too bad. Because one thing that I would be interesting, maybe we'll do this another time. There's uh, a terrific book by David Hackett Fisher called Albion Seed, which is sort of about the notion that almost like baby ducks, you know, geographical areas imprint uh, on the first story that's told there and on the first people who arrive there. And then these processes repeat themselves over and over again. It might be uh, an interesting thing for a, a longer conversation about what that means in Connecticut, how true that absolutely is. And I think both of you guys would be uh, terrific to talk to about it. So, But rather than open up that can of worms with two minutes left, I want to thank uh, Professor Matt Warshower, who is not the chair of the Department of History uh, <laughs> at Central Connecticut State University, but he is the author of uh, Connecticut and the American Civil War, Slavery, Sacrifice, and Survival. Uh, it's now out in paperback. For those of you waiting for that, uh, Dr. Frank Mitchell is curator at large at the Amistad Center for the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Did I get it right that time? That's um, that close enough. Okay, yeah. what's the name of the book? Uh, African American Connecticut Explored. All right. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow, we, it's rare that we do this, but we, we just by sort of happenstance, and actually part, partly by something I screwed up, uh, wound up <laughs> taping an interview. It worked out great. Taping an interview with Ingrid Newkirk, who's the founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. There's a way in which the conversation we're having here kind of goes forward in an odd way to some of the ideas that, that she has. Uh, but she turned out to be a very different person. She was in Hartford, uh, and we wound up having a, a, a one-hour full-length conversation, and she turned out to be a much different person than I had imagined she was. And um, so I hope you'll enjoy meeting her uh, tomorrow. And uh, let's have our massive audience of, I don't know, three, 400 people here at the pop-up location <laughs> say goodbye to Hartford. Thank you, Hartford. Dear President Lincoln, I'm Kion Wolf, which is an androgynous name, so it should be really no problem for me to serve in disguise as a man in this war. I also respectfully request that I get to keep the beard when the war is over. Because let's face it, everybody looks better with a beard.